This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over Tel Aviv. It is just after 10 p.m. here, and it has been 24 days since the horrific terrorist attacks by Hamas caught this country and, frankly, much of the world by surprise. We start tonight with breaking news. Israel says it is behind an enormous explosion at a refugee camp on the Gaza Strip. This was the aftermath of the blast at the Jabalia camp, which the United Nations says is the largest refugee camp in Gaza. Israel's military says it killed a top Hamas commander in its airstrike, a man they say was one of the leaders of the October 7th attack and was hiding amongst civilians inside the refugee camp. Israel also claims to have killed around 50 Hamas terrorists in that strike. It is not clear how many people were killed or injured, but the director of a hospital in the Hamas-controlled area says he has seen hundreds of dead bodies and wounded patients. He describes it as a, quote, scene no one can imagine. Uh, CNN's Wolf Blitzer pressed a spokesman for the IDF on why Israel would carry out a strike with so many civilians in the area. Do you know that there are a lot of refugees, a lot of innocent civilians, men, women, and children in that refugee camp as well, right? This is the tragedy of war, Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been seeing for days, move south. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from the head of a U.N. agency in Gaza about what his colleagues on the ground in Gaza are saying. And as all of this is unfolding in the Middle East, top U.S. officials on Capitol Hill are warning about the dangerous consequences of this war, both at home in the United States and abroad. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Antony Blinken stressing the importance of funding for both Israel and Ukraine's war efforts, saying that failing to do so would embolden America's enemies. And FBI Director Christopher Wray and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas were warning about elevated threat levels in the U.S. since the war began. We're going to have more on that in a moment. But let's get back to the blast at the Jabalia refugee camp, the largest such camp in Gaza. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is in southern Lebanon. And Ben, the Israel Defense Forces are confirming uh, that it is responsible for the airstrike and the damage. What more do we know about what and who they were targeting? Well, the Israeli military wolf, oh, uh, Jake, says that Ibrahim Biari was the target. He was the uh, commander of the Central Jabalia Battalion, uh, which the Israelis say he was responsible for sending uh, elite operatives into Israel on the 7th of October uh, for that surprise attack. And then he was also responsible for Hamas forces in northern Gaza as Israel continues uh, with its ground incursion. They say he was also responsible for a variety of attacks inside Israel uh, going back decades. But we also know as a result of this attack in this very, very crowded refugee camp that according to the head of the Indonesian hospital uh, there, there's somewhere between, there's somewhere around 400 uh, dead and wounded as a result uh, of that strike. And of course, that strike has sparked sharp condemnation from Egypt, Jordan, and elsewhere. Jake? 
Ben, you have been to the Jabalia refugee camp before. Tell us about it. Yeah, I've been there many times over the last 30 years. Yes, it's the largest of the eight uh, refugee camps in Gaza. According to the UN, it has a population as of 2023 of around 116,000. You know, it's always been known among journalists who go to Gaza that when you go to the Jabalia refugee camp, you are going to encounter more children than anywhere else. Uh, they're curious, they want to know what you're doing. Uh, the place is teeming with kids. We don't know how many of them were killed uh, in that strike, but I can tell you that that is the thing that stays with you uh, when you go there. It is cramped, it is busy, it is bustling, and it's a place that uh, was founded back in 1948 uh, with by Palestinian refugees who either fled or were expelled uh, from Israel and who've been there ever since. And certainly I've been there in the aftermath of Israeli strikes, during Israeli uh, incursions, but the level of destruction we're seeing as a result of today's strike is something I've just never seen before. Jake. Ben Wiedemann, ben Wiedemann in southern Lebanon, thank you so much. CNN's Nick Robertson is live for us in Stirot, Israel, just outside the Gaza Strip. And, and Nick, you've been watching Israeli tanks and troops heading toward Gaza. How does this strike fit into this expanded offensive that we've been seeing from Israel? The IDF have been saying that the way that the ground forces are operating is that when they identify a, a location where there's a Hamas stronghold, they call in airstrikes. So this fits it exactly because the IDF is saying high value Hamas target with other Hamas fighters in a tunnel. Uh, and that that's a target and, and the ground forces call in the target. And we know because we're standing here and we witness and hear the explosions all through the night and all through the day that there are some bunker busting munitions being dropped in Gaza to target these tunnel networks. So it, it fits it precisely. And I'm hearing a heavy machine gun fire over my shoulder here, which is the direction of the Jabalia refugee camp and Gaza City. But until last night, I was hearing that gunfire over this shoulder, which tells me the troops are actually advancing. But we don't know precisely how far they're getting. Uh, and we don't know, you know what it looks like on the ground. Is it phalanxes of tanks and armored fighting vehicles? Is it troops moving house to house? We, don't, we just don't know. But we do know when they find big uh, groups of Hamas, they're calling, it, calling in airstrikes, uh, despite the fact there's a very high civilian presence there. Nick Robertson at Stirot, thank you so much. Just into CNN, an Egyptian border official is saying that the Rafah crossing will open tomorrow for 81 Palestinian patients stuck in Gaza. They will be treated in Egyptian hospitals, they say. It is not clear what this means for the tens of thousands of other civilians trapped in Gaza. That includes hundreds of Americans uh, one of whom uh, did manage to send us an update today. You might recall Hanin Okal. We've been following her for weeks now. She's from New Jersey. She is in Gaza with her three children, the youngest just two months old. She and her brother Aboud Okal, who we have also been following and keeping in touch with, they were visiting family uh, when they got caught in this war. Uh, they've managed to find shelter in a house near Gaza's southern Rafah border crossing. Some 40 people are, are packed in there. We have been talking to them. We have been trying to get them out. 
They say finding food and water is getting harder by the day. Hanin sent us this new voice memo earlier today, noting the constant explosions they hear at night. Take a listen. My son, uh, who's two months, wakes up every night from sounds of bombing. He cries more often than what he used to. Uh, I still breastfeed him, but I'm so worried that the stress and fear of this war is going to cause my milk to dry up, which could cause a huge problem because there is no milk in Gaza. We are worried that we will become a casualty in this war. We're all Americans in here, and it has been 25 days since we have asked the State Department to bring us back to New Jersey, where my husband is waiting for us anxiously. Hanin and Aboud and your families, we are praying for you. We are calling everyone we can to help get you out of Gaza. And let me say again, President Biden, get these Americans out of Gaza. As Israel looks for international help funding its war today on Capitol Hill, Secretary of State Antony Blinken told senators there is a clear link between aid to Israel and to Ukraine. Since we cut off Russia's traditional means of supplying its military, it's turned more and more to Iran for assistance. In return, Moscow has supplied Iran with increasingly advanced military technology, which poses a threat to Israel's security. Allowing Russia to prevail, with Iran's support, will simply embolden both Moscow and Iran. Blinken's testimony comes as House Republicans, under the new leadership of new Speaker Mike Johnson, have proposed a bill to give aid to Israel, but not to offer any aid to Ukraine. I want to go now to CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, FBI Director Chris Wray also testified before a Senate committee today. He warned about the war here in the Middle East impacting U.S. security. Tell us about that. That's right, Jake. This was a warning from the FBI Director Chris Wray, as well as Alejandro Mayorkas, who uh, is the Secretary of the Homeland Security Department. And both of them were talking about the threats that they've seen since uh, the Hamas attacks on Israel. In the last 24 days, uh, the, the FBI Director said that they've seen threats rise uh, to the level not seen since the rise of ISIS uh, several years ago. And a lot of those threats, Jake, are being directed not only at at uh, Jewish communities, but also Muslim and Arab American communities. But uh, Chris Ray, the FBI director, spoke in particular about the level of anti-Semitic threats, which he said are reaching historic levels. Listen. When you look at a, a group that makes up 2.4% roughly of the American population, it should be jarring to everyone that that same population accounts for something like 60% of all religious-based hate crimes. Uh, and so they need our help. And Jake, uh, you know, he says that the, the threats are coming from domestic extremists, obviously groups of all kinds of flavors. Uh, and really, one of the things that the FBI and the Homeland Security Department are concerned about is that people might take the urgings of some of these extremist groups overseas, some of the terrorist groups, to try to conduct attacks here in the United States. That's one thing that they're focusing on, looking at people who are associated with Hamas and some of the other groups who might be doing things beyond just fundraising and might be inclined to do more than that here in the United States, Jake. Yeah, I think the, the point that Ray was making was that th the threats to the Jewish community come from across the spectrum, not just from the right, 
but from the left as well, from Islamic groups, from white nationalist groups, from everyone. Evan Perez, uh, thank you so much. On top of the strikes in Gaza, the Israeli military is also saying that its warplanes went north, destroying infrastructure belonging to the Hezbollah terror group. That exchange next as tensions mount across this region. Stay with us. We're back live from Tel Aviv tonight. Israel is a country encircled by conflict on its western border. Israel's military is bombarding Gaza in retaliation for Hamas's terrorist attack earlier this month as Hamas attempts to fire rockets into Israeli territory. To the north, the Iran-backed group Hezbollah is exchanging fire with Israeli troops. And on Israel's southern border, Israel says it thwarted a drone and missile attack by Iran-backed Houthi militants near the Red Sea. CNN's Jim Shudo is live in northern Israel. And Jim, let's start with the loud day along the Israel-Lebanon border where you were and you witnessed this exchange of fire between Israel and Hezbollah. Yeah. Jake, I'll tell you, traveling along the length of that border the last several days, we find cross-border fire virtually in every village, every road we, we go to up there uh, from, from the eastern end uh, all, all the way to the western end along the, the Mediterranean Sea. And today was no exception. And, and that's fire in both directions. You have Hezbollah militants firing rockets, artillery. They've been floating IEDs across the border on, on small parachutes. They've also been attempting to break through the concrete barrier that extends most of the length of the border, and Israel firing back. Howitzers, tanks, airstrikes going after Hezbollah infrastructure. They say they've killed close to 50 Hezbollah fighters in the last several days since October 7th. And as a result of that, what we've seen as well is that a lot of those towns right along the border, all of them along the border, have been mandatory, under mandatory evacuations. And many others that aren't even quite that close They've emptied out anyway because families just don't feel safe. And I understand it. We drive there. We look up into the hills. We see another explosion. That's the nature of, of a, of a low-grade conflict up here, but a conflict nonetheless. Jim, tell us more about what Israel says is a thwarted attack from Iran-backed Houthis down south near the Red Sea. This is the second time that missiles have come from Houthi-backed rebels in Yemen. You may remember a little more than a week ago, there were missiles fired and drones. They were actually intercepted by a U.S. destroyer just off the coast of Yemen before they could get this far. In this instance, it was Israel's Arrow missile defense system. There's a lot of talk about the Iron Dome, uh, that primarily for rockets coming across from Gaza and the north in southern Lebanon here. Arrow is for, for higher altitude threats, surface-to-surface uh, -surface missiles like this one that was fired today. In fact, the IDF says it was the first time today that the Arrow missile defense system has been engaged since October 7th. So the first time one of those missiles coming from the Houthi-backed rebels in Yemen made it this close to Israel, right? And the worry, Jake, is that Yemen has a lot of missiles, Hezbollah has many thousands of missiles. The worry is that those Iran-backed proxies will use the same strategy that Hamas used, which was to try to overwhelm those missile defenses, send many missiles at once, in which case some undoubtedly would get through.
Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, these right-wing Israeli extremists, these settlers, are killing Palestinians while, at the same time, Israel is also trying to deal with terrorists uh, in the West Bank as well. That's right. The IDF says it carried out the demolition of the home of a Hamas leader in a village just outside of Ramallah, one of the main towns in the West Bank. Uh, vehicles were seen going in the direction of the house and then a large explosion. This is a tactic Israel has used many times before to go after the homes of leaders after attacks like we saw on October 7th. But the sad fact is there, there was violence. And, and, and by the way, this vi violence preceded the attacks of, of October 7th. Violence by right-wing extremists, Israeli settlers, against Palestinian civilians in the West Bank. And we saw it again today. Uh, and the sad fact is that many of those settlers feel that they have the backing of elements of the Israeli government, some of the right-wing members of Benjamin Netanyahu's government. And it's a, it's a facet of this conflict we have to understand. Hamas, of course, a brutal uh, extremist terrorist organization responsible proudly uh, for those October 7th attacks. There are extremists in the West Bank. They also target civilians, and we saw that today. Absolutely. Jim Shudo in northern Israel, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hamas circulated a video this week showing three of its many hostages, 240 or something, alive. One of them, Danielle Aloni. I'm going to speak to her brother next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to The Lead, live from Tel Aviv. Moments ago, cameras captured flares lighting up the sky over Gaza. You'll see them there on the left side of your screen as Israel continues to target the area with strikes aimed at Hamas. Israel estimates there are some 240 hostages still held by Hamas in Gaza. Only four hostages have been released since their capture by Hamas on October 7th. One was rescued. This, of course, prolongs the grueling and agonizing wait for families that just want their loved ones home. Yesterday, Hamas released a short video of three women who are believed to be hostages kidnapped. Uh, Danielle Aloni, Ramon Kirsch, and Elena Trupanov. CNN is not showing the video. With me now is Moran Aloni. He is Danielle Aloni's little brother. She is one of the hostages who appears 
in that hostage video released by Hamas. And Moran, thank you so much uh, for being here uh, with us uh, today um, on what must be a very, very difficult, very difficult today. Um, have you seen the, the video? Did you watch the video? And, and what was your reaction? I have seen it. Um, it's clear that uh, she's in distress. You hear, um, you know, her, her scream to, to get free, to be free. Uh, but uh, she's also alive. This is uh, something that we didn't knew uh, two days ago, and now we know it. And, uh, but obviously she's, she's in distress. Right, yeah, but, um, um, but uh, 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 what passes for good news in this crisis situation that she is alive. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It is good news. Um, until, until the release of the video, did you know anything about her condition? I, I, my impression is that um, you, didn't, you didn't know if she was going to make it. We didn't know anything um, since two weeks ago, a bit more uh, since they told us that officially she was recognized as kidnapped. We didn't know anything about any member of the family. Uh, this includes her, uh, her daughter, Emilia. It includes my other sister, Sharon, her husband. Her two little daughters, they're all currently uh, 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 kidnapped. Remind everybody where they were kidnapped from. They were uh, kidnapped from near Oz. Early morning, uh, we were texting. They told us that there are terrorists in the kibbutz. After a while, they said that terrorists were uh, are, are in their neighbor house. After half an hour, in their house. After an hour, she wrote that they are burning the house. Mm. Last two messages that we got from her then were, help, we're dying. Um, after a couple of days, we understand that they couldn't find anything in the safe room, and we assumed that they were kidnapped, and after a while, we got the message that they were actually kidnapped. What do you want people watching to know about your sister? I want them to know that uh, what we saw in the video is her, in a very, very big distress. Yeah. My sister is a calm person. Seeing her like that, hearing her means that she's not well. The yeah. fact that she's speaking doesn't mean that she's well. Right. And the fact that people are now saying, okay, they look good, that's exactly what, what they want us to think. Everyone is okay, right. but keep in mind that there are three hostages that we saw. Right. There are more than 230 there. Yeah. And I think that this is, again, we don't know the situation of the other hostages, my, others, my, 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 my other sister and her family. We don't have, the Red Cross is not allowed there. Why? Why can't we understand what the situation of all hostages? Right. And, you know, that's, that's what I see there. A, a very big sign of distress. Right. And obviously not speaking willingly, not speaking her mind, Obviously. not saying what she actually would say if she were able to speak freely. I can tell you that my sister is not a political person. Right. It's obvious that this is part of the psychological warfare that we're having during this war. Whatever she said, I, I don't even want to go into that because it, it doesn't matter. It's, and it's not her. It's, it's exactly, exactly. This is the message that they want to bring here. Your father has said, 
we've been left as a family of four from a family of 10. Um, I can't imagine what you're going through. Um, I cannot imagine it. Um, the endless nights, the sleepless nights, you probably can't eat, you probably can't sleep, you probably like, can't think about anything else. What do you want people out there around the world to understand about what it is like to have your family members kidnapped by Hamas? What, 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 what should people understand? I don't think that uh, there's... I, I don't think telling my story would make them understand. I think only imagining their family, their helplessness in protecting their family, being relief when someone says that six of your family members are kidnapped, that's a relief. Right, for having us. that be good news. Exactly. In, in a warped world. Imagine, yeah. just imagine, close your eyes and imagine that you are unable to protect your family and that you are unable to know if they're alive or dead. That you don't know if, if the next hour uh, you'll hear that they're got, they got free or that three officers will come and say that they're all gone. Just close your eyes and think about that for a second. It's not my story. It's 240 people story. And if it happened here and we don't stop it here, it will happen everywhere. I can imagine that there are times when your body just shuts down from exhaustion just because your body has to and you wake up and you've forgotten and then you remember. I still wake up every day trying to wake up out of this dream. Like, yeah. You know, the moment that you wake up and you're not sure if you're dreaming or, you're, or this is reality, yeah. this is every morning, this is once an hour. Moran, I hope to see you again with a family of 10, with all 10, not Be four, free. with all 10. Thank you for being with us. Be strong. I'm so sorry you're going through this. It is not fair. It is not it fair. Is not. It's not. Thank you for being with Thank us. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. After more than three weeks of dealing with the trauma of October 7th and, and alarmed by so many in the international community denying the horrors committed by Hamas, many first responders are, are starting to talk publicly uh, about their stories, about the atrocities they, they witnessed with their own eyes. A warning now that some of the images and, and descriptions uh, that you're about to hear and, and see are quite disturbing. As the Deputy Director of International Emergency Operations for Hatzalah, Israel's Volunteer Emergency Rescue Service, Lenore Atias has seen many gruesome and haunting scenes, but nothing could have prepared her for October 7th when she came to the site of death and destruction at Kibbutz Be'eri, where bullets and RPGs were still flying because Hamas still controlled some of it and would for days. After being warned of a grenade, she entered a house where she tended to a wounded soldier. And then I, I remember that I turned my head and I saw the family. They tied up the kids and the, and the parents was tied up 
in front of their kids and they shot them. So much blood and I, I didn't have the time to feel anything at that moment. I just... How many, how many people? There were four. Two kids, around a girl the same as my girl age, around 11, and something like a boy six years old. Honestly, that moment just blocked my feeling. I, I understood that now I'm a, I am a soldier, a robotic soldier, if I want to survive that and just to help as many people as, as we can. There was a, a little girl, around eight or nine years old, and they cut her hand here, over here. They cut it or they cut it all? They just cut it all, no hand. She was still breathing. She was just like shaking. And I prefer my tourniquet, but it was her last breathing. Her last breathing. I wasn't there earlier to save her. She just lost so many blood for hours, all by herself. No one was near her even. She was so afraid, her eyes, all by herself. How old was she? Around 10, around 10 or 12, I don't know. Everything just, I don't, I don't know how to explain that. No. I don't know how to explain that. It's, I don't, I don't know what kind of evil demon can create that kind of operation because they thought of, about everything. It was well organized and the world need to know that right now. There are going to be people that, that hear your story and they say, how come we didn't hear about it until three weeks later? It's just because you didn't want to talk about it? Now, after three weeks, that I understand the importance to speak about it. There are people out there who, who don't believe these, who don't believe these first-hand accounts. I don't blame them. I don't want to believe it also. I want to sleep at night, and I don't sleep yet. I don't sleep. And I don't blame them. As we were leaving, Lenore introduced us to another rescue volunteer who went to other parts of Israel that day, David Bader. His first stop was Stirot. What I saw there, he tells us, people strewn, dead bodies, dozens. At the Sha'ar HaNegev junction, I counted, there were 24 bodies, he says. There was also the body of a boy that was thrown, the stroller, the stroller of the baby. Why? Why would you kill him? He tells us that Kfar Aza was like a destroyed cemetery. Dead, injured, blood everywhere in the houses, in the yards, on the street. You can't understand what I saw there, he says. It's impossible to understand. 
He remembers a family that had been driving in a car until terrorists killed them. The children were charred, just charred, he says. What could a child do to an adult, he asks. He was a baby, strapped into his car seat inside the car. He guessed that the terrorists took a firearm, shot and killed the members of the family, and then, with a knife, cut their throats. David responds like this to skeptics. It's a shame that those people didn't come there to see what happened on that Black Saturday, he responds. Get it out of my stomach, out of my head, everything that happened. Why do we deserve this? Dozens dead. The smell. Even now, it's still with me. I want the entire world to know, the entire world to know what Hamas did, he says. Children were killed. Small children. Kids that didn't even know how to say Dada or Mama. They didn't even know how to say it. Now, none of this is in relation to anything that the Israeli government or military is doing. But these actions provide the context as to why the Israeli government has decided, with overwhelming Israeli public support, that they cannot allow Hamas to be able to carry out any future attacks on the Israeli people. The UN says one aid group alone has lost 64 workers, more than any other team in any other world conflict in such a short period of time. The dangerous work of groups such as this. That's next. And we're back live from Tel Aviv today. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the U.S. is trying to get 100 trucks carrying aid into Gaza each day to help the Palestinian uh, individuals there who need help. That, that is nothing, of course, compared to the 500 to 800 trucks that used to enter daily before the war began, before Hamas invaded and killed so many innocents here in Israel. Trucks now likely have little, if any, fuel desperately needed to power hospitals and to desalinate water. Joining us now is Thomas White. He is the director of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency in Gaza. Thomas, thank you for joining us. There was a huge blast at the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza, that's north of Gaza City, today. The IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, they say it was an Israeli airstrike, uh, as they claimed to be going after a senior Hamas commander. Uh, your agency describes this as the largest refugee camp in all of Gaza, uh, what more can you tell us about the strike? Jake, we're very concerned about what's occurring in Jabal right now. Uh, reports are coming in that there are you know, well over 100 casualties. We understand that there were six airstrikes in the area. Uh, the reality is that this is a very densely packed urban area. Uh, in that area alone, we have 21 schools uh, with shelters. Before October the 12th, we had 87,000 people sheltering in those schools. Our best estimates now are that there are at least 30,000 people still living in those uh, UNRWA schools in Jabalia camp. Uh, so the events of tonight are tragic uh, and we are very concerned about civilians sheltering uh, under the UN flag in Jabalia. You have previously mentioned there being a breakdown of civil order in Gaza, especially now that aid is slowly uh, trickling in. Describe um, what you mean when you say people are in survival mode. 
uh, and they're stealing flour from warehouse. Help us understand the severity of this humanitarian crisis right now. Just to give you an example, one of the camps, uh, what we know is the middle area of Gaza, uh, the population effectively doubled overnight in that camp. Uh, people are seeking shelter wherever they can. Water and food are in very short supply. You know, and under these conditions, you, know, you start to see society unravel. Uh, and that's what we saw in the last 48 hours uh, with the looting of a number of our distribution centres uh, particularly in the in the uh, middle areas of Gaza, you know, the community are under enormous pressure. People are desperate now to find water and food. Uh, and the breakdown of uh, public services uh, and the private sector. I'm concerned that this dynamic uh, is going to be uh, increasingly prevalent across the remainder of uh, southern Gaza. And just yesterday, the UNWRA commissioner said that 64, 64 aid workers, your colleagues, have been killed uh, since October 7th by Israeli airstrikes. That's the highest number of aid workers killed in a conflict anywhere in the world in such a short period of time. How have you been able to work under these conditions while trying to keep yourself and others alive? Jake, it's been incredibly difficult. Uh, all of our staff are grieving. The whole community of Gaza is grieving for lost loved ones uh, or they're worried about loved ones who are still in the north. Uh, the reality is wherever you, in, where, wherever you are in Gaza, it's not safe. Uh, there have been airstrikes uh, in the south over the last few days. So it's been very exceptionally tough on our teams as they grieve for lost colleagues. Uh, but what is really remarkable is these... These, the UNRWA staff are really the heroes of Gaza at the present time. They're living, many of them are displaced themselves. In fact, I'd say the majority of the several thousand staff uh, that are working currently are living in internally displaced centres. Uh, they are coming from those centres, working exceptionally long hours. Uh, and what's really tough, you know, is that they know what they need to do for the community in terms of food, water uh, and other essential supplies, but they just don't have them in their hands. I met with a large group of our staff in our training centre in Han Yunus today, you know, and I continue to be uh, overwhelmed by their sense of uh, can-do attitude, despite the, uh, the difficulties and the circumstances, they're getting out there every day to try and serve their community. Thomas White, thank you so much, and thank you for what you do, sir. Really appreciate it. Appreciate the time, Jake. A moment of panic here today, one that people here in Tel Aviv experience quite frequently. Stay with us. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. 
Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm standing on a rooftop uh, looking out over Tel Aviv. It's just about 11 p.m. here in Israel and a few miles away in Gaza. It has been 24 days since the horrific terrorist attacks by Hamas caught this country and frankly much of the world by surprise. Tonight, a massive explosion rocking a Gaza refugee camp, killing many people to cause an Israeli attack. Israel Defense Forces say they killed a very senior Hamas commander in the area who was reportedly hiding behind civilians, as Hamas does. The cost of that strike, civilian lives. Doctors at the nearest hospital tell CNN hundreds of injured and killed have been brought to the hospitals. Many remain under the rubble. Photographs from the scene show multiple large craters in the ground surrounded by the rubble of destroyed buildings. An eyewitness telling CNN children were carrying other injured children and running. Bodies were hanging on the rubble. Some were burned. Israel's attack on Hamas in the refugee camp is part of its expanded offensive inside Gaza, where overnight Hamas's underground tunnels came under fire. Israeli forces saying they struck about 300 Hamas targets. That includes, the IDF says, military compounds inside those underground tunnels. At the same time, a new threat to Israel is emerging from Iran. Iran-backed Houthi militants in Yemen claimed responsibility for targeting Israel with drones and missiles near the Red Sea in the south. Israel saying it thwarted that attack. Israel also facing incessant rocket fire from Hamas in the west and throughout the country. This evening, Hamas has fired numerous rockets at us here in Tel Aviv, intercepted uh, by the Iron Dome uh, just a couple hours ago. That's the uh, intercepting missiles going up. And earlier today, uh, here is what my team and I witnessed when we were driving north of Tel Aviv. Uh, We heard an explosion to the west and every car on the highway pulled over. We all got out and we ran into a ditch that was built there. We were driving, and uh, we all had to pull over and make sirens, and I've said it a million times on air, the, uh, the death toll in Israel is not uh, as high as it is in Gaza, and the buildings don't look like they do in Gaza, but it's not for Hamas's lack of trying. They are constantly, constantly firing rockets into Israel. And uh, the Iron Dome stops most of them, but not all of them. One of the families uh, sheltering uh, with us in that trench uh, had a newborn baby and a weeping uh, young daughter. The mom was bursting into tears as she held her daughter and they looked up to the sky uh, for any incoming uh, rockets. Um, which is uh, day-to-day life uh, in Israel uh, with Hamas right next door. Um, Back on Capitol Hill in the United States, 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin were making the case for more aid to support Israel and also to help the worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza. The fighting as of now may be contained within Israel and Gaza, but the overall threat awakened by this war has transcended borders. The United States is now in a heightened threat environment with possible threats at historic levels. These are warnings from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Secretary and the FBI Director who are saying that this significant rise in threats and propaganda could encourage violent extremists to act against the Jewish community in the United States. Uh, let's get back to this horrific blast, however, at the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza, north of Gaza City, a witness described to CNN that it, quote, felt like the end of the world and that seven to eight holes, craters in the ground were, were filled with uh, dead people, body parts, quote, all over the place. CNN's uh, Nada Bashir has more on the Israeli airstrike. Uh, we want to warn our viewers that the images in this report are quite disturbing. Horrifying scenes of utter despair. Where is she? This man pleads, but everything here is gone. Part of the Jabalia refugee camp, among the largest and most densely populated in Gaza, now turned to rubble. The latest target of Israel's relentless air campaign. The IDF has claimed responsibility for the airstrike. The target, they say, a senior Hamas commander killed in the blast. We were focused again on a target, a senior senior commander. But this attack, this massacre, as doctors in Gaza are describing it, has hit civilians hardest. Emergency response teams work desperately in the hope of finding more survivors. But outside Gaza's overwhelmed Indonesian hospital, corpses line the street. The number of those killed and injured, according to the hospital's director, already in the hundreds. They were just in their homes. Children, women, the elderly. We have no idea what to do. The injured are everywhere. Inside the hospital, mothers with their children, wounded and traumatized. But outside, survivors continue to dig through the debris of what once were their homes, desperate to find loved ones buried beneath, but all fearing the very worst. Some of the videos which have emerged from the aftermath of the airstrike on Jabalia are simply too graphic to show. Doctors tell CNN that bodies were found charred and dismembered. This nightmare comes after residents in northern Gaza were warned by Israel to evacuate southwards. But many simply cannot leave. And while Israel denies carrying out collective punishment against the Palestinian people, but scenes like this, reflected across the Gaza Strip, show that it is civilians that are paying the price. And look, Jake, we have seen airstrikes taking place like this one across northern Gaza. We've heard that evacuation order from the IDF, but there are simply so many people, including patients inside hospitals that cannot leave northern Gaza, that cannot evacuate southwards. And while the south has been described as being a safe zone 
by the IDF. What we have seen for more than three weeks now is that safe zone, that southern part of the Gaza Strip, also coming under relentless bombardment by the IDF. There is nowhere safe for people in Gaza to turn. Nada Bashir uh, in Jerusalem, thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN's Jeremy Diamond, uh, who is in Ashkelon, Israel, which is uh, in Israel just north of Gaza. And Jeremy, uh, what is the official response from the IDF about this strike on a refugee camp? Well, Jake, the Israeli military says that it was responsible for the airstrike that appears to have leveled entire buildings in the Jabalia refugee camp. But they say that this strike was justified because they say that in this airstrike, they were able to kill a Hamas commander, commander Ibrahim Biari, who they say was responsible in part for those terrorist attacks t that took place in Israel on October 7th. They also say that he is a key commander who has been commanding Hamas forces in northern Gaza, fighting Israeli troops as they have expanded their ground operations in that area over the last five days. Now, the IDF says that Hamas is responsible for the civilian casualties that may have resulted from this strike, uh, blaming Hamas for hiding behind civilians, uh, which is a frequent uh, uh, argument that we have heard from Israeli forces when there are civilian casualties in these types of strikes. They also repeated their urging for civilians to move south, which we also know uh, has proved very difficult for many civilians, particularly as a lot of these routes going south have been constantly bombarded. Uh, the IDF also says this about that Hamas commander, quote, his elimination was carried out as part of a wide-scale strike on terrorists and terror infrastructure belonging to the Central Jabalia Battalion, which had taken control over civilian buildings in Gaza City. The strike damaged Hamas's command and control in the area. As a result of the strike, a large number of terrorists who were with Biari were killed. Uh, and the IDF the IDF also later said, Jake, uh, that uh, the, the underground uh, infrastructure that existed below these buildings is partly responsible for why a number of the buildings around the one that were targeted collapsed. We cannot independently, of course, verify that claim. Uh, and what's also should be noted is that Israel has carried out more targeted uh, uh, attempts to kill uh, previous Palestinian militants in Gaza, including in November 2019, when they actually struck the specific bedroom where a Palestinian Islamic Jihad commander was uh, staying. And that just shows you that they can uh, and have been more precise when necessary in the past. And lastly, Jake, I just want to say we actually believe that we may have witnessed this airstrike earlier today. We saw what appeared to be this very same airstrike. It was at the same time. Our camera was pointed in the direction of that uh, of the Jabalia refugee camp. And you can see in this video a enormous uh, plume of smoke that emerged right around the same time when that airstrike was conducted. Jake. Jeremy Diamond in Ashkelon, Israel, thank you so much. It could be weeks, of course, before we know uh, just how many uh, innocent people were killed by that Israeli strike today on the refugee camp in Gaza. Uh, we may never uh, know. Uh, is Israel calculating those figures as it for its forces carry out these targeted attacks and Hamas apparently hides hides in the refugee camps. We're going to seek an expert opinion on that next. And we're back live from Tel Aviv today on Capitol Hill. The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken testified before members of Congress about atrocities committed by the terrorists of Hamas in graphic detail. He shared the horrors uh, of their attack to drive home the need for Congress to send Israel and Ukraine uh, more U.S. military aid. Take a listen. 
uh, a family of four, a young boy and girl, six and eight years old, and their parents around the breakfast table. The father, his eye gouged out in front of his kids, the mother's breast cut off, the girl's foot amputated, the boy's fingers cut off before they were executed, and then their executioners sat down and had a meal. That's what this society is dealing with. Joining us now to discuss the former Secretary of Defense under President Trump, uh, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, um, there is this growing divide within the Republican Party over tying aid to Ukraine with aid uh, to Israel. Um, today, the current Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, said not sending aid to Ukraine could soon result uh, in U.S. troops fighting in Europe. Um, why do Republicans see aid for Israel and aid for Ukraine so differently, do you think? And what's your view? Well, good evening, Jake. Uh, good to be with you, first of all. Uh, look, I believe that aid for Israel and Ukraine and the rest of the package, too, which includes Taiwan and border security, should all be passed. I think it's important to our national security. I think it's important to our border security. And I think it sends the right messages to Iran and Russia and uh, China about the seriousness for which we take defense and the unity of our uh, our political leaders here in uh, the United States. I, I don't know exactly why Republicans are split on this issue. Clearly, uh, former President Trump uh, has spoken out and others on, on that wing of the party talked about uh, the need to uh, divert money for Ukraine to address border security issues and, and maybe even Taiwan. I think that's a false choice. I think we need to do both. We need to do all the above because our adversaries are watching and because it does send the wrong signals to those uh, capitals. I want to play part of uh, Defense Secretary Austin's testimony today on Capitol Hill. Take a listen. The, the things that you do on the battlefield could, uh, if, if, if you're not thoughtful about them, they could create uh, a resistance to your effort that lasts for generations. One of the big questions uh, that we've been talking about on this show now for weeks is not whether Israel has the right uh, or the justification to try to eliminate Hamas, but whether what they're doing is the right way. Certainly Hamas hides among civilians, and it's not only Israeli intelligence, but American intelligence that says that they have command and control centers underneath hospitals in Gaza. But attacking a, a refugee camp, killing a Hamas leader and other Hamas terrorists, but also killing potentially hundreds of innocent people who are refugees, maybe, maybe children too. Do you think Israel is, is doing this strategically enough, thoughtfully enough, wisely enough? Well, the first question you asked, Jake, is always the important one that you have to weigh out. And, and you know, even during my uh, time and during the Gulf War, uh, when my unit went into southern Iraq, we weighed those issues as well about uh, taking precautions, abiding by the laws of war. And you want to make sure that you don't create more uh, enemies than you kill or capture. And that's, I think, what Secretary Austin was getting to. Look, Israel is a professional military fighting force. And uh, unlike Hamas, um, they are accountable to a democracy, uh, to a, an elected government and uh, they have signed up to the Geneva Conventions. Uh, I believe they are, they are doing the best uh, they can to abide by the laws of war. You know, they've provided access to humanitarian organizations. 
Um, it looks like they're trying to, to be careful. But in, in such a densely populated area, it's impossible to not have collateral damage, to not have civilian casualties. And that's the tragedy of war. I do not believe that uh, Israel is targeting uh, civilians. That cannot be said of Hamas, who are clearly, as you reported earlier, still targeting on a daily basis large cities, Tel Aviv. Um, they continue to hold uh, innocents as hostages um, in Gaza somewhere. Uh, Israel's not doing that either. So, look, I, I think uh, we need to, to encourage uh, Israel to be thoughtful as they prosecute uh, this this campaign. It's it's going to it's going to wi uh, widen, of course, and unfortunately, it's going to get um, e even uglier as uh, as ground forces move into Gaza. Around 400 Americans and their family members are still stuck in Gaza. What's your understanding of why? the U.S. isn't able to get these Americans out? Yeah, it's a great question, um, uh, Jake. I've tried to, you know, from what I can pick up and read, uh, I, I've had heard at least two explanations. One, uh, Egypt is not allowing the transit of people in either direction. But prop the primary thing that I've picked up is that Hamas is not allowing them to leave. And, and why would that be? Of course, as you reported, Hamas uses uh, civilians, innocent civilians, as human shields. And of course, uh, Americans, keeping Americans in uh, Gaza uh, keeps them vulnerable to Israeli collateral damage. And uh, of course, it's leverage for Hamas to use uh, both in the conflict itself and on the international stage politically and in the information warfare game that they clearly are, clearly are trying to exploit to Israel's uh, disadvantage. Mark Esper, former S Secretary of Defense, thanks so much for your time as always. Good to see you, sir. Thank you, Jake. So many families here are suffering two tragedies. Not only do they have loved ones missing, others in their families were killed. A woman dealing with that will join me next. You have met her on their show, this show before, and we'll meet her in person in just a minute. Since the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas, Abby Own has been sharing updates here on The Lead about the status of five of her family members who went missing after the attack two weeks ago. Uh, horrible news. Abby told us about her cousin, 80-year-old Carmela Don, and Carmela's granddaughter, 13-year-old uh, uh, Noya Calderon. Um, they were killed by Hamas. And, and three members of her family's, uh, uh, of her family, uh, Noya's father, Ofer Calderon, as well as Noya's siblings, Sahar and Erez, they're still missing, uh, presumably kidnapped. Um, Abby owns, uh, joins me here in Tel Aviv, and Abby, thank you for being here. Um, we feel like we've adopted you to give us updates. Thank you. Thank um, you. Have you have you heard anything about the three family members that are still missing? Do you know that they're kidnapped? Have, have you been told that? They're confirmed kidnapped. Confirmed kidnapped. Two of the hostages that were released, one of them was from near Oz and was able to confirm that Ofer was alive. Okay. Which gives us a lot of hope. Yeah. We heard confirmation that Erez and Sahar are alive. We don't believe that the father is with the children, which is what we were hoping, but the hope gives us motivation to fight. So four hostages you noted that, that four right. have been released. Um, so I guess the question I have is the fact that four have been released and one has been rescued. Right. And the one that was rescued was a soldier. Right. And you would think those would be the first ones Absolutely. that would be murdered. Yes. Um, does that give you hope? Does that, I mean, obviously we expect 
the absolute worst from Hamas, and we right. saw that on October 7th, and you lost two of your beloved relatives to Hamas, but does that give you any hope for the, for the three that are still? Absolutely. I think Hamas is keeping these people as a bargaining chip, and I think keeping them alive and keeping them in good form is their best weapon right now. For us, it's the worst. We want them back as soon as possible, but I do believe, and I will continue to hope until I don't have reason to. Yeah. So the video that they released, obviously these three women, uh, one of whom spoke, uh, obviously under duress, obviously they didn't want to be there, obviously they shouldn't be there, they should be home. Right. But, but what was your response to it? One, it's good to see a sign of life. For whoever's family members got to see that, they got to see their relatives alive. Yeah, we had the brother uh, of the one who spoke right, earlier on, right. on the show. Right, so that's positive. I, I'm guessing anytime we see a video, Hamas is telling them what to say. I'm guessing they want more political strife here, which it's already here. Right. But my guess is they're sending a message to us somehow, and, and this is what that was. Um, how worried are you about, we're not for people don't know this, but like Gaza is that way and Israeli troops are going in, it's right. phase two, the ground campaign's going in, airstrikes continue. Um, how worried about, are you about that impacting your ability to get your three family members home? I'm worried. I think we're all worried. We're worried for the hostages, we're worried for our soldiers, we're worried for ourselves, civilians here and in Gaza. Right. I, war's hard and bad. There's nothing good about it. And our continued request and demand is that the hostages be brought home now because we know it's going to get worse and yeah. we want to make sure that they're home safe before anything else happens um what you and your family are going through i, I it's so cliche that i keep saying this to people but I, I can't imagine it i mean i have a wife i have kids i have a brother i mean like i i i, I don't know what you're experiencing and it must just be the worst thing in the world. It's a horror movie and I, I feel like I can say that without emotion because I'm compartmentalizing. I'm sticking all of these unbelievable stories of rape and torture and babies burned and all of these things that you yeah. can't process. I'm putting them aside and I'm trying to just keep my eye on a target which is keeping this message of bringing these innocent civilians home as soon as possible and at the very least getting the Red Cross in, giving us signs of life for everyone treating the wounded. There are wounded people there that need medical attention. And I don't understand the response from the international community that, that they're not putting pressure on this extremely basic need. Yeah. And, and the humanitarian aid, I haven't met an Israeli yet who doesn't want the innocent people in, Palis in, in, in uh, the Palestinian people in Gaza to get the humanitarian aid. Everybody weeps for those poor people that Hamas is victimizing them too. Right. I think this is a humanitarian crisis that Hamas is creating and it allows them to continue this war, to hold on to the hostages. And until we stand unequivocally against Hamas, against terror, then this will continue, both for them and for us. We are having rockets ourselves every single day. This is terror for us as well on an ongoing basis since October 7th. So it's not like what happened in the US on 9-11 where the terror was one day, it's not that it was contained, but it was one day and then the war was fought somewhere else. Yeah. The terror happened here on October 7th and we're fighting the war and we're grieving and we have our loved ones in tunnels somewhere. Tell us about your, your nonprofit, Niveau. Nouveau is an organization that I founded with Michael Eisenberg, who is a venture capitalist here in Israel, uh, t three or four years ago. Basically, Israel is a country of immigrants, and immigrants need community, and Nouveau is a place for them to accelerate their careers in tech, which is the main economy in Israel right now. But since October 7th, Nouveau changed. It became a massive um, contributor to the civilian effort in supporting this country. 
Um, they are immigrants from more than 20 countries and they're doing everything from bringing gear and, and getting them directly to soldiers. They are a foreign press on behalf of the Prime Minister's office. They are supporting the resettlement of families from the South. They are... What do people need to Google to find it? Um, NIVO. N-I-V-O? N-E-V-O. N-E-V-O. There's a link that we're going to find a way to get to you. Okay, N-E-V-O. All right. But it, the point is that people who chose to make Israel their home are bringing their best potential and their best leadership to make sure that Israel stays a safe home for all Jews. Okay. Well, we're going to keep having you on the show. Thank you. And w at one of these times, it's going to be you and your three beloved family members back news. with you. Absolutely. All right, Abby, thank, thank you. you so much. We'll be right back. Thank you. In our politics lead, a battle is brewing on Capitol Hill as new House Speaker Mike Johnson is pushing to tie aid for Israel to billions in cuts to the IRS budget, money that had been allocated under the Inflation Reduction Act, or that's what it was called. That bill already appears to be on a path to nowhere as House Democrats and Senate Democrats say they will never support it, the Senate Democrats obviously being much more important since they control the Senate. CNN's Melanie Zanona is on Capitol Hill. And Melanie, you've been tracking this battle over aid to Israel all day. Are, are House Republicans, are all of them uh, behind the bill Speaker Johnson's pushing for? Well, almost all House Republicans are behind this bill, except for two of them, Thomas Massey and Marjorie Taylor Greene, have both said they would vote against an aid package for Israel. But Senate Republicans are really divided. In one corner, you have GOP leader Mitch McConnell and defense hawks like Lindsey Graham, who say it is in the interest of national security to do a broader package that includes Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, border security money. But then in the other corner, you have Senate conservatives who say they don't support more money flowing to Ukraine, and they want to see Ukraine and Israel delinked and they also are worried about undermining the new spike speaker Mike Johnson so this issue has really pit Mitch McConnell against his own party and put him in line with Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer let's listen the house GOP package is woefully inadequate has the hard rights fingerprints all over it making aid to Israel who just faced the worst terrorist attack in history contingent on poison pills that help ultra-wealthy tax cheats. And we'll see uh, if the bill comes out of the House, and if so, what kind of margin it has. Um, my own view, I just expressed, is that we need to treat all four of these areas, all four of them, Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the border. So the House and Senate are really on a collision course here. The House is looking to pass its Israel aid package as soon as Thursday. The Senate is teeing up that broader package. Unclear when it will get a vote. Could be sometime next week. And meanwhile, government funding expires in just three weeks. So Congress doesn't have a lot of time to figure it out, Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona, thanks so much. I want to bring in Eric Erickson, the host of the Eric Erickson Show. Um, Eric, yeah, you just heard Melanie Zanona's report. Uh, House Republicans under Speaker Mike Johnson uh, working on a bill that would tie Israel aid to $14 billion in spending cuts um, that had been allocated to the IRS uh, to, you know, crack down on tax cheats, et cetera, et cetera. Senate Democrats said that would be dead on arrival. I have to say, just hearing what Mitch McConnell said, uh, supporting aid for Israel, aid for Ukraine, aid for Taiwan, and uh, strengthening the border 
That just sounds like four things that Republicans would be in favor of. I'm kind of confused why House Republicans wouldn't be in favor of it. Look, there's a division as to how much to fund, and I think they support almost all of them, but we do have a problem on our hands as a nation. We're rapidly getting to the point where the bond yield is going to push us to all of our revenue coming in is going to have to just pay debt service. So Republicans are starting to think we've got to cut. They've contributed to the problem and should be honest about it. But as much as I'm with Mitch McConnell on wanting to fund these things, I also do see we're headed towards a serious fiscal crisis in the country and do need to start having the conversation about what to cut. Even um, if the aid for Israel and, and Ukraine were decoupled, do you think Speaker Johnson would be willing to, to bring a vote on a bill for Ukraine aid to the floor? Because there's obviously majority support for it if you include Democrats and Republicans. But the question is, would a Speaker Johnson be willing to bring the vote to the floor, even if he opposed it, knowing that it would pass? He has said he would in the past, and I suspect he would. Uh, I'm told behind the scenes he's sympathetic to funding Ukraine. His concern is the the waste and in, in graft in Ukraine and probably needing an inspector general tied into overseeing the money. At the same time, he's been amenable to funding Ukraine in the past. He's been very strong about supporting Ukraine in the past. Uh, obviously, the dynamics have changed with him and the Speaker's chair, but you've got a majority in the House that want it, and there are mechanisms in the House for a majority to get something to the floor, even if the Speaker doesn't want it. And I suspect you'd see moderate Republicans and Democrats unite in doing that if the Speaker doesn't allow and control the vote. How do you see Speaker Johnson? Do you think that he's going to be, remember it's you know Speaker of the House, not Speaker of one party or the other. Do you think he's going to be somebody that will be able to work with Senate Democrats, work with President Biden, come up with compromises, obviously, you know, push for what he wants, but ultimately uh, meet in the middle, ultimately strike bargains? Or, or, or do you think he's, he's ultimately more of a Jim Jordan type? I, I think he's between where Jordan and McCarthy were. I, he will cut the deals that need to be cut to keep the government, government governing. But at the same time, he's going to fight harder than McCarthy would. Uh, he's not willing to shut everything down and go for broke. Uh, he does understand he's in a precarious position with moderate Republicans as well. Uh, but he is going to fight harder than I think conservatives expected McCarthy would. Uh, because, um, again, it is something that we as a nation have to deal with, Jake, that uh, we're about to be in a position where 100% of revenue to the government goes just to debt service. So we won't even be able to fund anything without issuing more bonds, accumulating more debt. Uh, and that's going to put us in a real world of hurt. So we've got to be mindful that I want all these things funded, too, more aggressively than he does. But I also realize where we're headed as a nation financially. Interest rates probably going back up again tomorrow. Yeah. Senate Republicans appear also uh, divided on whether aid for Israel should be tied to aid for Ukraine. Uh, take a listen. Well, if we're going to have a piece of legislation that actually becomes law, it's going to include support for Ukraine as well as Israel. It's uh, not acceptable to abandon Ukraine. Uh, that would be devastating to uh, our interests around the world. We have a Republican um, majority in the House, and so we ought to be listening to what they want to do. And my understanding is Speaker Johnson has been clear. He is going to not put Ukraine aid together with uh, aid for Israel, um, and I completely agree with him. How do you think Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell should, should handle this predicament of a House Republican 
uh, conference that, that just views this differently than he does. McConnell is an expert at doing what they call jamming the House, uh, sending over what he wants on a timeline that makes it unavoidable to get. And I suspect you'll see those Republicans and the Democrats jam the House on this. Thanks to Matt Gates, they dragged the speaker fight out for so long. We're within about two and a half weeks of our government shutdown. And that puts the Senate in the driver's seat. They've been there all along plotting while the House Republicans were in chaos. Advantage goes to the Senate. Taking... Um what is is playing out here over aid to Israel. How do you see this going when the House and the Senate and the White House need to come to an agreement over a bill to fund the government in, in just a few weeks? I, look, I suspect what you're going to find is, is they will pull some of the Israel-Ukraine funding out. They will deal with it together as a separate piece of legislation, and they'll kick the can down the road for the larger spending issues until January or April, coming up with a continuing resolution. That was Kevin McCarthy's plan. Mike Johnson sounds like that's his plan as well. So they'll deal with everything, uh, but they've got to slow the train down a little bit thanks to the chaos we've had for the last few weeks. Things will get funded. I doubt the government's going to shut down, uh, and we will just kick the can down the road further. Congress's favorite game, kick the can. Eric Erickson, thanks so much. Yep. Good to see you, sir. Coming Jay, up, the disturbing spike in anti-Semitic threats. Oh, thank you, Eric. Coming up, the disturbing spike in anti-Semitic threats in the United States since the start of this war started by Hamas against Israel. Stay with us. Now we're back now from Tel Aviv and a major update back in the United States concerning threats against the Jewish community at Cornell University. New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced earlier today a person is in the custody of New York State Police. Authorities began investigating over the weekend after online posts threatened students in a Jewish dorm and the university's kosher dining hall. Governor Hochul visited the campus to tell Jewish students, quote, they are not alone. Will resist. At a high school in Mechanicsville, Virginia, someone painted a swastika on the football field. Authorities in Connecticut are investigating a swastika drawn on a high school campus in Stamford. It is the second time the symbol has been found there since October 7th. Today, the director of the FBI testified before Congress on the rise of these anti-Semitic incidents throughout the United States. This week, the Justice Department announced more than $38 million in grants to help local communities combat anti-Semitism. Joining us now to discuss the troubling rise of anti-Semitism in the U.S., former Democratic Congressman of Florida, Ted Deutsch, who is the CEO of the American uh, Jewish Community. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. So according to the ADL, anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. have increased nearly 400 percent since October 7th. Uh, today, FBI Director Ray said these incidents are reaching historic levels. Um, what do you make of it all? Well, this is a really important moment, Jake, for the country and for the world. This is not just painting swastikas as terrible as that is. This is not just painting Jewish stars on the homes of Jews as concerning as that is. This is a straight line from what happened on October 7th when Hamas terrorists killed 1,400 people, men, women, children, raping women, killing babies, uh, burning them alive, decapitating uh, the people they killed and capturing it all on GoPro cameras. It's a straight line from what happened that day 
to where we are today. And that line takes us through professors on college campuses who viewed what happened on October 7th, that horrific massacre, as resistance. It, it's a straight line between October 7th and what we've seen on Cornell's campus, what we've seen on other campuses across the country, what we've seen all around the world with people screaming, kill the Jews, gas the Jews, F the Jews. This, this is a moment where we all have to sit up, Jews and non-Jews alike, and recognize the threat to the Jewish community that exists as a result of people standing on the side of Hamas terrorists who massacred 1400 uh, and standing on the side of civilization against those Hamas terrorists. That's the moment that we're in. So and it requires leadership everywhere at every level of universities and government and business. So a lot of the anti-Semitism that was public and a lot of the threats um, were from the right uh, for years and years, uh, you know, beginning with uh, the Trump era when, when uh, that crowd uh, began feeling emboldened and began um, saying the quiet part out loud. But what you're talking about, quite honestly, a lot of it's from the left. A lot of it, quite honestly, is from the left. And I'm wondering if you think the party to, the party to which you belong, the Democratic Party, uh, is outspoken enough. If you think uh, the Democratic House leader, Hakeem Jeffries, is outspoken enough. If you think um, Democratic leaders from coast to coast are outspoken enough, not just saying that they decry anti-Semitism, but in calling out specific individuals in the Democratic Party who espouse what you're talking about. Uh Yes, Jake, that is exactly what should happen. We have, we have seen the playbook that, uh, that's being used that, for example, brings in the Democratic Socialists of America as allies. And when DSA candidates who run as Democrats or affiliate with the Democratic Party talk about intifada intifada, which is code for, not code, it reflects right back to what happened earlier this century when a thousand Israelis were slaughtered as a result of suicide bombs on buses in cafes and bars and clubs. That's a call for violence. When they save Palestine from the river to the sea, you know this, you're there. From the river to the sea means no Israel. It means that exactly what Hamas wants, killing all the Jews. So every democratic official should sever any ties with the DSA and the role that they play contributing politically to this horrific uptick in anti-Semitism. The same thing is true, Jake, as you may recall, uh, I called out a colleague on the floor of the House who started using some of the same rhetoric. We have to be clear, wherever anti-Semitism comes from, right or left, we've got to call it out wherever we see it that includes in politics, it includes universities, it includes businesses. There can be zero tolerance for this Jew hatred that has put so many at risk right now in America. Just for the record, you were talking about Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, and the debate was about whether or not to fund the Iron Dome that I have seen in the eight days I've been here stop so many 
Hamas rockets from killing so many Israeli civilians. Civilians. Congressman Ted Deutsch, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. The controversial decision to open Gaza, Gaza's Rafah crossing tomorrow. Who gets out and who's forced to stay in? That's next. Tomorrow, Gaza's Rafah crossing along its southern border is expected to open, but only for a select few. An Egyptian border official says 81 Palestinian patients, described as seriously injured, will be allowed to cross for medical treatment in Egypt. Some 400 Americans are still trapped in Gaza, as well as so many others from other countries, all with food and water running out. Wolf Blitzer is next in the Situation Room, live here from Tel Aviv. I will be back tonight at 9 o'clock Eastern, filling in for Caitlin Collins on The Source. I will see you then. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.